As we start part one of our journey through the book of Genesis today, I want to begin with the words of David in Psalm 11.3. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Everywhere we look and everywhere we go, we see a world that is plunging headfirst into the future with no remembrance of the past. Americans are forgetting their history. Adults are forgetting the lessons they learned in childhood. But worst of all, Christians are forgetting, maligning, and altogether abandoning the book of Genesis. Meanwhile, the question of the skeptic is no longer what it used to be. Because the fact of the matter is, people are no longer as interested in finding the objective or absolute truth that science provides. Instead, they're much more interested in making up their own truth. What I mean is, when it comes to the book of Genesis, the world isn't so much questioning creation anymore, as much as they're questioning a God who doesn't accept their lifestyle. A God who has defined his own truth. A God whose very existence is a slap in the face of relativism and the idea that anybody can wind up in heaven someday. But unfortunately, this way of thinking is not just prevalent among the lost, it's also making its way into the church as we speak. And now we have professing Christians trying to take what, what they like in the Bible and, and leave out the rest. And then we have pastors and teachers um, trying to give them whatever their itching ears want to hear. But in all of this observation, I have a question to ponder this morning. Why is it always the Old Testament, and specifically the book of Genesis, that gets thrown out first when people start abandoning the, abandoning the idea that the, the Word of God is inspired, um, that it is inerrant? Why not the Gospels? Right? Why, not, why not the book of Revelation? Why not one of the epistles? Well, I would say it's because of this one simple truth. If you can disconnect yourself from the foundations of Scripture, then you can pretty much twist the rest of it into whatever you want it to be. Here in a minute, we're going to have a picture come up of a house that is on a truck. Um, it, it, it reminds me of, of house relocation. I didn't even know it was a thing. But, I mean, like, driving down 84 and stuff, especially, you'll see, like, you know, like whole windmill blades or, like, you know, a house of... Like, a, like one half of a mobile home, and then you'll see the other half come down. That's normal. We all see that. But I didn't know that you could get, like, a house that size, like a full stick bolt house. Like, with the use of hydraulic jacks, you can get it up off the, up off the foundation, and you can truck it to somewhere else. Um, and that's just, that's just super interesting to me. But the thing is, there are so many things you can change if a house is still connected to the foundation. There's so, excuse me, there's so many things you can't change if, that, if a house is still connected to the foundation. But when you remove a house from the concrete it sits on, from the context that it, that it, that it gives, from the um, thing that gives it its shape, when you remove a house from that, um, you can pretty much change anything you want to. And here's the connection. The book of Genesis acts as a foundation for the house of Scripture, and when people disregard it, they wind up making a lot of changes to the rest of the house. So that's why this series is called Returning to the Foundations, because now more than ever, the book of Genesis is under attack. And when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That said, today we begin with part one by asking the question, why does Genesis matter? 
But before I make that case, there's something very important that I need to clarify. And I want to start by explaining that each book in the Bible actually has a literary genre. Some books like Psalms are poetry, others are apocalyptic like Revelation, and others are historical narrative like the Gospels. Now, the genre of Genesis is important to not only this sermon, but this entire series, because what we understand about genre can have a serious impact on how we interpret a book of the Bible. So before I say anything else, I need to say this. The book of Genesis is history, not poetry. The best way to know that Genesis is history is to look at the original Hebrew. In his book called Why Genesis Matters, Christian author and astrophysicist Jason Lyles explains the historical nature of Genesis in these words. In Hebrew writing, historical narrative is distinguished by what is called the vav consecutive. Vav, or wa, is the Hebrew word and letter usually translated and in English Bibles. When a sentence starts with and that is followed by a verb, it is the vav consecutive and indicates historical narrative, as in a chain of events. For example, Genesis 1-6, and God said, in Hebrew is worded, and, and said God. This is the vav consecutive. Almost all the verses in Genesis 1 are vav consecutive, which is why many translations of Genesis 1 begin almost every verse with the word and. It may sound awkward in English, and some translations omit some of the ands for that reason, but the structure is indicative of Hebrew historical narrative. So in other words, Hebrew historical narrative is defined by a certain word order that has, has to do with describing events in real time. For example, if you were to ask me what I did yesterday, I'd probably say something like this. First, I woke up and I ate breakfast, and then I almost yelled at one of my kids, and then I fed the baby because she was screaming, and then my two-year-old spilled her milk, and then I checked email, and so forth. So Lyle's point is that the book of Genesis is filled with and-thens from beginning to end. Therefore, it is textbook Hebrew hysterical, historical narrative. Hebrew hysterical narrative. That's very emotional. Extremely. That's, I think I was thinking of my kids there when I said that. They got Freudian slip there. Hysterical, historical. But beyond all that, he, he, the, the, this author, um, Lyles, he goes on in his book to explain that the specific naming of people, places, things, and timelines in the book of Genesis is another reason that it's clearly history and not poetry. That said, I really don't think you need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand that Genesis is a literal portrayal of actual events. If you just read it at face value, it really doesn't sound symbolic or poetic. It sounds literal. But with that understanding, why is this so important? Well, if Genesis is history, then we must accept the fact that it is a literal story that actually happened. And that's why many in both the world and the church have tried to argue that Genesis is poetry to make everything conveniently symbolic. And while that may be able to square well with evolutionary thinking and liberal viewpoints on marriage and family, it just isn't reality. So just know for this entire series, we are going to look at Genesis as what actually happened, as opposed to what might have, sort of, kind of, symbolically happened. With that key understanding established, Genesis matters for three reasons. First, Genesis matters because it helps us understand God's perspective. Have you ever noticed that the way that the world looks at the most basic fundamental things in life is often in direct opposition 
to the way that God looks at those very same things. That's because the world's perspective is at odds with God's perspective. But the thing is, if Genesis is history, then the world's perspective is just a point of view, while God's perspective defines reality. Because according to Genesis, God is the owner and creator of all things. Let's think about this on a much smaller scale for a moment with this idea of house rules, right? When you invite somebody over to your house and you like play a board game, you're probably going to have some specific rules that you or your family have kind of, you've played by over the years. And if somebody comes over to your house, well, they're going to have to play by your rules, and that's understood. For example, my family has a rule of monopoly that whenever you land on go, you get $400, okay? You get $400, you get a little extra, right? It's more than just passing go, you landed on it. Now, if I were to come over to Evan's house to play Monopoly, um, I, I might have that rule, but if he doesn't, like I gotta, I gotta play by his house rules if he doesn't. But if he comes over to my house, well, he's gonna get $400 when he lands on go, go and so am I. And while Evan and I might have different perspectives on how to play the game of Monopoly, in the end, the owner of the home we are playing in decides what reality is going to be. And here's my point. God's perspective is the only perspective that defines reality because the book of Genesis establishes that we're all playing the board game of existence at God's house. And honestly, I can't possibly communicate how important and relevant it, that is because every day we're bombarded with the message through social media, TV, and virtually like anything public that we are not in God's house and that we get to make our own rules. I would venture to say that we've probably all been influenced more than we even realize, because make no mistake, when God speaks, it's a still small voice, but when the world speaks, it's like constant yelling, and what we take in affects what comes out. Think about it for a second. How much information do we take in day in, day out, that is either subtly or overtly contradicting what God has established as truth in the book of Genesis alone, not even counting the other books of Scripture, just Genesis. For example, what do you believe about animals? Is it more in keeping with Genesis or commercials and documentaries? Or how about the idea of cavemen? Do you think that God created intelligent men and women from the beginning, like Adam and Eve, or have you unknowingly somewhat accepted the lie that humans were originally stupid and illiterate? See what I mean? That's why Genesis matters. It reminds us of God's perspective in a world that never stops shouting lies, and it is shouting some lies right now. God's perspective is reality. The second reason Genesis matters is that it helps us understand God's plan. All right, now nobody freak out here. I do not have any arrows, okay? And I am not going to draw the bow, okay? No arrows, not drawing it. So I just want to make that clear before I start talking and hold this in my hand, just in case any of you feel like you're on my bad list this morning, you know. I... <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've actually managed to bag two bucks with this thing. It was given to me. Um, it's my first and only bow. It was given to me by my father-in-law, Carl. And uh, I've really gotten to love um, bow hunting and archery. Um, but the thing is, you might not know, when I first started out, um, I was bad, okay, like really bad. I could not hit the broad side of a barn from 10 yards away, bad, okay. And, uh, you know, it, it, I had to learn the fundamentals of how to shoot a bow. Maybe some of you um, have, never, have never shot 
a bow or never done archery. So I just want to take a moment to explain what things are in a very basic fashion. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, I could literally tell you what each nut and bolt does on this. And you'll, okay, you're, you know what I'm about to say. All right. But here are the different parts. All right, so basically, um, with my bow, I use a trigger, something called a trigger. It attaches to this red loop. Um, and when I draw the string back, um, I just, you know, gently, you know, ease my finger on that trigger and it, and it releases the bow. Some people use their, their hands. They just do it with their bare hands. But right here um, is where the, the arrow gets knocked, okay? Um, and you knock the arrow and it sits in something called the whisker biscuit. And if you remember nothing else from this sermon, the whisker, the whisker biscuit is my favorite name for a piece of archery material. Um, but then what you have is, so the, so the arrow's knocked here, and it's sitting here in the whisker biscuit, okay? And when you draw back the string, you look through something called a peep sight, which is right here. On my bow, it's right on the string. It's this red little ring right here. And when you pull it all the way back, the ring, like, goes flush with your eye so that you can look straight through it. And what you're looking straight through it at is this sight picture right here. Um, and there's different pins, and you know, so, so the top one on my, on my bow is 25 yards, then it goes down 35, 45, and so on. Uh, the bottom one is 65 yards. Um, and when, you're first, when I was first learning how to shoot, I was doing what you're supposed to do. I was shooting it at the target and making adjustments to where I was hitting, so that eventually this bow lines up with how I aim, how I hold it. Um, that's how I was taught. So I'm making adjustments, practicing day after day after day for many, many hours, okay? And I'm, I'm wanting to get good at this thing, right? But to no avail. I mean, I got arrows coming underneath the target, over the target, to the side of the target, right and left. There's absolutely no consistency. And, but I just keep going at it because I'm stubborn. And um, finally, I'm out with my dad one time doing this, practicing. And he's like, let me see if I can give you a few pointers. Let me, let me watch you draw this bow back and shoot. And so I was like, okay, great. Like at this point I'm desperate. Like help me out. Um, so I draw it back, shoot it, shoot a couple arrows. And he looks at me and I'll never forget what he said. Um, he, he said, Connor, are you looking through the peep sight? I said, what's a peep sight? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I was missing all those shots and it was completely inconsistent because somehow in learning how to shoot a bow, I missed like something very crucial about how to shoot it. And so I was just looking at the pin. I was putting the pin right at the target. I was, you know, holding it real steady and, and doing everything you're supposed to do to get it to be consistent. And meanwhile, I'm like just missing completely because I wasn't looking through the peep sight. Now, here's my point in sharing that. Genesis is like a peep sight for understanding God's plan. If we don't know it, we'll make the mistake of approaching the rest of Scripture like I approached archery when I was first learning how to shoot. You can draw the string, you can look at the right pin, you can put it directly on the target, but if you don't look through the peep side, you're going to miss. And that's because the Bible isn't just a bunch of separate books that have been stuck together. It's one continuous story. And without the events of Genesis, we wouldn't even fully understand why Jesus did what he did or why he's coming back. Because just like any good story, everything in the Bible points back to the beginning. It might surprise you to know that there are 42 quotations of the book of Genesis in the New Testament. That's a lot of mentions for one book. It's roughly 5% of the Old Testament, but 42, 42 quotations. 
Let's take a look at one of those examples. In 1 Corinthians 15, 44-49, Paul explains the nature of the resurrection for believers in these words. And stick with me, this is a little bit confusing, but we're going to get to it. Again, verse 44, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual was not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, that is undoubtedly a confusing passage. You're not really supposed to get what that means right off the bat. If you do, like, you get a gold star today. Okay, you, you have studied this before. But I want to start by unpacking this by taking a look at Genesis to make sense of it all. So let's, let's look at, um, at verse 45 where Paul actually quotes Genesis 2-7. Here's what Genesis 2-7 says. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So this tells us that God created Adam out of the dust and that he breathed life into him to make him come alive. Okay, that's, that's a great start. But in order to really unlock the 1 Corinthians passage, we need to skip ahead to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had just committed the first sin, and in Genesis 3.19, God completed his speech about the curse of sin to Adam with these words, For you are dust, and you will return to dust. In other words, God told Adam, I brought you into this world, and I'm going to take you out. <laughs> now, if we look back at our 1 Corinthians passage with what we know from Genesis, we, we can begin to understand the comparison that Paul is making. The first Adam and the dust represents the mortal life, the flesh, the curse of sin, death. The second Adam represents eternal life, the, the spirit, the redemption of God. Now, both Adams lived on earth for a time in the flesh. But one made right what the other made wrong. So the second Adam is Jesus Christ. And what Paul is ultimately saying is that we as believers die because we live in mortal bodies, but that we will live again because the Spirit lives in us. Now, here's my point in sharing that. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 49 is just one of many compelling examples of the fact that we need to understand Genesis to fully grasp God's overarching plan in Scripture. Reading the Bible without knowing Genesis is like starting the Lord of the Rings trilogy at the Two Towers without ever watching the Fellowship of the Ring. You might understand bits and pieces, okay? Now, some of you have watched all of them, and you're still like, what is going on? What is going on? And I feel for you. I really do. I will sit down and watch it with you just to explain what's going on. All right? But if you don't watch the first one, you're just out of luck. I mean, if you start right in the middle, I mean, you're going to be like, who's this Gandalf guy, you know? And what's so important about him? Why do they keep talking about him? Or maybe for you sports fans um, out there, it's like watching the Super Bowl without understanding the fundamentals of football. You might be a fan, but you won't understand the meaning behind certain plays or like crucial moments in the game. The point is, if we don't know Genesis, then our understanding of the rest of Scripture is lacking depth and it's lacking context because Genesis is the first puzzle piece in the plot of the Bible. 
And it's what gives us the foundational pieces of God's epic story. So that's the second reason why Genesis matters. Because more than any other book, it helps us understand God's plan. The third reason that Genesis matters is because it helps us understand God's people. Did you know that 39 out of the 50 chapters in Genesis are specifically about the origin of Israel? That's almost 80%. Now, in recent sermons in the past, I have taken a lot of time to explain why we as Christians have been grafted into the true Israel by faith, so I'm not going to do that again today. But make no mistake, without the book of Genesis, I wouldn't be making that case, because when it comes to the story of God's people, Genesis is unique. It's the first book of the Bible that reveals what makes a person a part of God's family and what pleases him. It also outlines what God's people are called to do in the Abrahamic covenant, and it sheds light on how God deals with those who are not his people. But perhaps the most interesting thing is that the events events of Genesis took place long before the law was ever written, which means that being a child of God has always been a question of faith, not legalism. That's why Paul and James went back to Genesis to define righteousness and sonship to the Jews. Because after Jesus fulfilled the law, early Jewish Christians were having difficulty understanding how a relationship with God worked and what it was really based on. But Genesis shows us that the way we relate to God through faith is the same way that the patriarchs of Israel related to him. It's like a cohesive in the story of God's people that joins modern-day believers with the very first people of faith. In fact, without the book of Genesis, one might look at the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the early church in the New Testament and kind of like wonder what the connection is. But thankfully, because of those first 50 chapters of our Bible, no one has to wonder. Beyond that, Genesis also helps us understand God's people because of the way that it is written. Here's what I mean. While the first book of the Bible is history, it's also a narrative, which means it's a story with a beginning, middle, and end that focuses on main characters. Actually, most of what we can learn from Genesis and apply from Genesis comes from the characters of the story. Characters like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Abraham and Sarah. Have you ever realized that of the 16 heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, and if you don't know uh, Hebrews 11, it basically is uh, this, this chapter in the Bible that explains, uh, that goes through all these people that were to emulate in their faith toward God's. But of the 16 heroes that that chapter mentions, eight of them, eight of them are from the book of Genesis. So what that means is that of the 939 chapters in the Old Testament, the first 50 chapters contain eight of the heroes of faith, while the other half are from the remaining 897 chapters, 879, excuse me. If anybody is doing that quick a math, you already know I'm wrong. You're very, very smart. But 879 chapters. And with that, let me ask a question. Why do you think it is that the author of Hebrews gave so much attention to such a small amount of the Bible and the story he wrote about God's people? Well, maybe part of the reason why is because the book of Genesis covers more time than the other 66 books of the Bible, com- 65 books of the Bible combined. But I think the main reason why is that Genesis is simply unparalleled in the way that it helps us understand the people of God. So in summary, Genesis matters because it helps us understand God's perspective, it helps us understand God's plan, and it helps us understand God's people. Again, when the foundations are destroyed, What can the righteous do? 
Think about it. Where is the enemy striking right now? What keeps the lost from being found these days? Is it not what is established in the very first book of the Bible we call Genesis? I think a lot of it is. And that's why we are beginning this journey of returning to the foundations. That's why Genesis matters, because we as a church cannot afford to be tossed and turned by the winds of relative morality and the waves of public opinion. Now more than ever, we must stand steadfast on the truth that is in the Word of God, a truth that never changes. Now, I realize that the nature of this sermon has been heavy on the informational side of things, so I do want to spend a little bit of time here at the end talking about how we can apply all this. Many years ago, I was watching a Christian documentary on creation, and I can't remember who the speaker was exactly, but he said something that really stuck with me over the years. And he was explaining how we handle the different issues that we come across in the Bible and when we have difficult questions. And he said, when you have difficult questions, um, don't ignore them. Like hit them head on, deal with them. And he called the process wrestling with Scripture. I really like that. So first of all, I would encourage you to read the book of Genesis on your own. But as you do that, and as we work through this entire series, I want to encourage you to wrestle with the book of Genesis. If you have a question, don't ignore it. Dig in and pursue the answer. And I'm not saying you're always going to find that perfect answer because there are certain mysteries that we must trust into the hands of our Creator. God is God. We are not. But if something is bothering you or eating at you from what we are reading, don't table it for later. Take the issue to the ring and see what you can find out. If you do, you'll be glad you did. Because what you believe about the foundations of Scripture will be sure to have an effect and what you believe about the rest of it. So all in all, my hope today is that this very first sermon, through the very first book of the Bible, that in it you are already starting to see just how much Genesis matters. Now, I realize that there may be some of you here today who maybe these very things are speaking to you. That's often the way that God works um, we'll be talking about something and it'll speak right to someone who he brings into our lives. So maybe God has you here today for a reason. Um, maybe you've struggled with a book of Genesis or you don't believe it or you um, don't see how it squares with science. Or maybe some of the issues in it um, about marriage and family are, um, you just don't know if you can accept all of that. And uh, what I want to say is that whatever, whatever your struggle is, um, Everything in this world takes faith to believe. Like we can't know anything for certain. Even everything that, even things that seem to, to be certain really aren't. If you just really dig down into it, you'll get to a question that you can't answer. And so at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what you are going to believe in or not believe in. But it's a choice to believe or not believe. It's a choice to have faith or not have faith in something. <laughs> even if you're choosing not to have faith and having faith in God. That's a choice. And so I just want to encourage you to think about that and think through that this morning. Um, and I hope you come back. And uh, I want to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer right now. Um, Lord, I do pray for that one right now that um, may not know you. Um, I know that you have them here today for a reason. And um, I just ask that you would speak to them, that you would lead them um, to lay it all down, to surrender um, to you. 
Lord, I pray that if they feel that you're speaking right now, that they wouldn't ignore that. Lord, I just, I have no idea how you work sometimes, but you work miracles. You work amazing things. And so I just trust that. And I ask that you would be with the rest of us um, that do already have a relationship with you, that believe in you, and that have believed in what you've done on the cross, um, and that you've taken care of our sin problem by forgiving us there. Um, I pray that you would help us to dig into the, to, to your uh, book of Genesis, dig into the word, um, and really seek to, to apply it as we begin this new series. Um, and Lord, I know a lot of other things are going on in the church right now, um, and uh, there's just quite a bit going on. And so I also lift, lift those things up and ask that you would cover us in the areas that I have not mentioned. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.